Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Harry, what edible delight has fallen from the sky into your lap this time? Well, it hasn't fallen from the sky, Dan. It's fallen through my letterbox because you very kindly posted me um, a Crispin, a fan of the podcast, has, gave us all a um, traditional Cornish saffron cake, um, which you, you you handed it over to you in, at the Manchester event, and then yeah. you very kindly posted it to me. Anyway, I've got it here, Warren's traditional Cornish saffron cake, and it says our saffron cake has been made to our own family recipe for over 150 years. And I see from the ingredients that it contains thiamine hydrochloride, which I remember my gran always had in her scullery. <laughs> Um, and you know the story of saffron, of course, because saffron, as you know, Dan, is extracted from the stigma of the purple crocus. And it was cultivated in the Middle East originally, and it was so valuable, saffron, that it was more valuable than gold. And so the bulbs were very closely guarded, or corms, I think they're called, that, that crocuses grow from. And saffron was brought, in a, the legend has it, it was brought back to Cornwall by a 14th century pilgrim who, con- who concealed one of the corms in, the, in a hollow staff. And he planted it near Bude in Cornwall. And that's how that's how Cornwall became associated with saffron. And Cornwall was the centre of the English saffron trade until the sort of for the first hundred years, but then it shifted to Essex, to the town of Chipping Walden, which by mm. 1580 was so associated with saffron that it changed its name to Saffron Walden. Ah. And hence its name. And I should say Saffron Walden Town FC, bringing things back to football very briefly and tenuously. Saffron Walden Town FC, the oldest team in Essex. Um, they played in the Spartan League, the Parthenon League, and the Isthmian League. Those sadly not wearing pale yellow shirts died from saffron. <laughs> so anyway, thank you to Crispin for yes, our, for our yes, saffron for cakes. Uh, when I wrote that about falling from the sky, I didn't connect with what you'd be talking about. And if it did fall from the sky, it probably would kill you if it hit you, wouldn't it? It, 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 it might actually. It's quite. A, it's quite a hefty. It's quite a hefty unit, isn't it? <laughs> I was passing through Carlisle and I did think about just throwing it in your direction to Hexham because it's got enough weight that it might have made it across across Northumberland. It could have done, actually. If you sort of threw it, yeah, threw it kind of uh, quarterback style. <laughs> or you could have punted it. You could have punted it like a goalkeeper. <laughs> With the right wind. With the right wind. You'd have to have given me a warning. But now in the garden waiting, looking at the sky. The neighbour said, what are you waiting for? I said, I think it's saffron cake. <laughs> <laughs> Any other news from that place or elsewhere? Well, I've been um, I've been reading, rereading George Plimpton, Paper Lion, uh, one of the best sports books ever written, I think, where he spends a pre-season training with the Detroit Lions NFL team and then plays in a, a pre-season game somewhat disastrously. But there's a good bit in it about the um, the quarterback, um, Earl Morale, and he says that Earl... Um, there was a good deal of joking about, his, about Earl Morale's big toe, which he had lost to a power lawnmower. Since then, his passing had improved, and the players had suggested that he get the toe mounted like a rabbit's foot to carry around as a watch charm. They kept an eye on his passing in practice, and when passes went astray, they reminded him that he still had nine toes left to experiment with. <laughs> and, um, and it reminded me, of course, that Charlie George, I thought Charlie George had lost a toe to a, in a lawnmower accident, but in fact, he lost a finger in 1980. Whether his passing improved or not, I'm not sure, but he said that he could no longer take throw-ins. And how about you, Andy? Well, uh, I, early this morning, actually, I heard someone uh, shouting for a long time outside my block of flats on the ground floor. I went outside and couldn't see anyone. But then I, I heard, that's not a threat, mate. That's a promise. So <laughs> it, might, it might be the delivery slogan of one of those online supermarkets. You know, I, don't, I know you said you wanted broccoli, but you'll have cabbage. <laughs> Anyway, I might have to pause if I get a knock on the door. I don't know if he's roaming around my block. Um, anyway, another news, football. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo, you may have seen, is uh, leaving Man United in quite a huff, but he's also busy as, he, as he's launching his own range of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, not much of a crypto. I'm not a crypto bro. Um, but I get the impression that ship has sailed a bit. I mean, in January, as, as you may know, uh, uh, Neymar bought... Bored Ape 5269, described as a red ape wearing a multicolored T-shirt shooting lasers from its eyes. He paid 491000 for it, but with the recent crashes, the value of the NFT is now 169000 so he's lost £288,000 on his investment. And that's just careless, isn't it? No night, no <laughs> night out for him for, for you know, a day or so. So, Christian, if you're listening, think on, put it in stamps, get some... 
King Charles III first day covers, whatever they are. I'm never quite sure what first day covers are, but that's what people seem to buy. <laughs> Much more solid investment long term. Um, looking at various news reports on the World Cup, which, as you know, is going on now, and saw an interview with uh, England fan dressed as a crusader. Of course, not the best costume to wear in the Middle East, though the crusader's got no near the golf. And since he was interviewed, actually, the, the, the security at a couple of stadiums have stopped England fans coming in dressed as, as, as crusaders, um, which is a, hopefully that would be a, a bigger trend. But he was complaining about the prices of staying in Qatar and, and that what FIFA don't realise is that the fans are the essence of the game. Were the, were the Knights Templar like this originally, do you think, complaining about the price of food and drink and the amenities <laughs> available to me? There might be some specialist research on this topic. You know, I've, I've come all this way from, from Canterbury or Winchester. You know, I expected better value, frankly. I bet they were like that, actually. <laughs> a bit whiny. Whiny and prone to pillage. We've all known, I think we've all known, <laughs> we've all known someone like that, I think. Um Various, you know, as you might imagine, because uh, we do a, you know, a soccer magazine, we've had various PR messages about the World Cup. As one allegedly described itself as the nation's favourite burger chain, Byron Burger, have launched their Hattrick Burger, which consists of two, I won't read out all of this, but basically two beef patties topped with bacon pickles and a Hattrick of cheeses, Red Leicester, Cheddar and American. Is there a type of cheese that's called American? I mean, is it, <laughs> American is it one cheese. that's got? It's one that's got additives in it that are banned in Europe or something. Possibly, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, finally, someone's hawking. Um, uh, this may have happened before at the Euros. Actually, Gareth Southgate, England manager, life-size, card, life-size cardboard cutout for thirty-nine fifty. But he's got his waistcoat on. I don't think Gareth's wearing that now anymore. He should maybe get like a range of cutout clothes to put on him, like you know the kind of people the way people used to dress paper dolls, maybe a, a fringe cowboy jacket or a stovepipe hat, you know, like liven it up a bit. Um, there was a shot of um, beleaguered FIFA president Gianni Infantino at the Germany-Japan game, um, wearing a, where the, the, the German interior minister, Nancy Fira, sat alongside Infantino. She was wearing the One Love armband that FIFA had, um, uh, had banned players from wearing. Uh, German players made the point of covering their mouths in the team photo before, uh, beforehand and sort of in protest. But Infantino is, is sitting at the Germany-Japan game wearing a massive pair of trainers. I mean, they're probably the most expensive ones you can get, though I bet he didn't pay for them. But I'm, I'm no no trainer expert. But, but to me, they look more like a sort of end-of-line sale at JD Sports or something, or, you know, possibly like orthopedic shoes that maybe he's got weak ankles he's, he's a martyr to his ankles not that he's complained about it he's complained about everything else so maybe we'll get around to that eventually also i should say i also got um some of the the, the saffron cake from crispin and uh, thank you very much to, to crispin for that yes and did you enjoy it i did enjoy it yes i had it with with my morning my, with my morning tea i probably put on about five pounds but you know hey that's the way it goes <laughs> You've been enjoying the World Cup yourself, Harry. I have actually, yeah. But I've been. I remember it made me think when I used to go to football with my grandfather, and he always would look around Ayrton Park, and he would say, "There's thirty thousand in here, but they'll announce twenty-five. And I'm looking at. I look at the crowds now in at the World Cup, and I say, "There's forty thousand in here, but they'll announce sixty-seven." <laughs> Issue 427 of When Saturday Comes Magazine is out now. And joining me to probe its pages is Deputy Editor Tom Hocking. Hello, Tom. Hello, Dan. Thank you very much. So, yes, uh, WSC 427. But I'd like to start with a bit of personal news, if that's okay. Uh, After 11 years in various roles at WSC, this is my last issue working for them. It's quite a momentous thing for me. I've been involved in 129 issues altogether, including this one, uh, which is not a bad run. Um, It's just under a third of sort of WSC's lifespan so far. Um, So there you go. And I I started at WSC on work experience back in 2011 before they took a chance and, and gave me my first job out of uni, where I started off packing t-shirts and, and things like that, helping subscribers with, with address changes. And since then, it, it's just been um, such a pleasure uh, and a privilege to, to, get them, to get to make a magazine that I, I really love and I'll continue to be a reader of for the rest of my life. Working with an incredible team and some of the most talented writers and photographers and illustrators around. So I just wanted to say a big 
sort of thank you to them, but also to listeners and the readers for supporting the magazine during that time because it's 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 made it um, a really wonderful job. Um, well, so thanks for that. <laughs> our thanks on behalf of all those people you've mentioned, Tom, because you've done a wonderful job, and I, I shall miss you. But uh, I wonder if you're annoyed at finishing on an odd number like that. And is it Brian McClare or someone that scored something like 399 goals or something like that? Yeah, well, it's always been it's always been an easy one to count for me because my first issue was uh, 299. <laughs> so <laughs> I may have even got the math wrong. I think it's 129 issues because including 299. Um, so yeah, uh, so it, it's always been an odd one. Sort of the my second issue was WSC 300 and lots of sort of things looking back yeah. at the history of WSC and, and things like that. And I was like, oh, well, it's only my second issue uh, back then. Um, but in, in a fit of nostalgia, I was looking back at, at sort of ahead of this, I was looking back at that first issue that I, I was involved in. And among articles on Alex Ferguson's 25 years at Manchester United, uh, Boxing Day 1963, which I gather we've never <laughs> talked about, um, and, and how the, uh, just to keep it festive, you know, we're nearly, nearly in December, and, and how the Berlin Wall affected mm. football. There, there were a couple of other articles that jumped out. One was about safe standing, which included Celtic fans oh. campaigning for a standing area, which, um, as it yeah, turns out, was yeah. successful. So well done, Celtic fans, yeah. on that campaign. And, and also in that, in that issue, there was another article on a Qatari team, Al Saad's unexpected and controversial Asian Champions League victory, a year after the nation oh. was awarded the World Cup. Um, and, and the article signs off with the line, as Qatar's football fans know well, an unpopular victory is still a victory. Um, so there you go. Oh. <laughs> Jump forward 11 years and look, look yeah. where we, we're at. But all, also, interestingly, and, and to segue nicely into into the new issue in, in 299 there was an article about david beckham's goodbye from from la galaxy with an mls cup win um, and asking what next for the competition without without his major star um, well we know he coped fine with his his tourism <laughs> deals as, as we'll call them um, but skip forward 11 years and and as you'll discover if you read wsc 427 MLS also seems to be in, in really good health. Gareth Bale came off the bench uh, for a different LA club, imaginatively called LAFC, to send a thrilling final game to penalties where, where they came out on top. And it drew the second highest TV audience in the competition's history. And it, it, that competition is just about to start uh, a 10-year deal with Apple TV. So I was thinking that I look forward to reading <laughs> WSC in 10 years' time to see how that TV deal worked out. About 100 issues, maybe, time, and then, then yeah, we'll, we'll get to find that out. So that that is one of the things covered in the new issue. El- elsewhere, it, it won't have escaped your attention that there's a World Cup going on. So obviously, this issue wrapped up pretty near the start of the World Cup. It had only been a few days old, but we've we've already sort of been given an editorial subject with the uh, slightly shambolic armband non-protest from, from various nations. And the editorial looks at how FIFA and their friends in high places tend to drown out any dissenting voices by sort of covering them up with meaningless slogans and, and how the various FAs, including the English one, have so far been too weak to stand up to them. And maybe that'll change. There's, there's only been sort of a, a brief protest from Germany up to now, but may, maybe that'll change a, a bit more as the tournament goes on, or maybe it'll just get forgotten. But, but yeah, it's quite a strong editorial topic there. So back to uh, proper football and my last issue. So we've covered my home city, Sheffield, but the wrong club by sending Mike Bailey to Bramall Lane for for Sheffield United's game against Rotherham for our match of the month. There are some lovely photos of the stadium by Paul Thompson. And I'm allowed to say that because Wednesday (laughs) played there before United even existed. So there you go. Um, And it's a really entertaining match report from from Mike Bailey on a very unpredictable championship as it it always is. It's almost a cliche to call it unpredictable, but it, it really is. And once again, the uh, WSC match of the month curse strikes when we, we go to an informed team um, and, and watch them lose. So there you go. On, on the subject of lovely stadiums, uh, we've got a celebration of Fratton Park as part of our regular team spirit feature, uh, which this time focuses on Portsmouth. It includes the wonderful fact that the first transaction recorded in the club's, club's cash book after they'd purchased the land on which they'd build Fratton Park was £168 received for a load of potatoes <laughs> they dug, dug up from the field. 
Can any club claim to have, have made money from agriculture on land that they've then built a stadium on? Readers, let us know. <laughs> I'm sure they have, actually, but there you go. And then further down the leagues, we, we've got a, a bit of a complaint from Mark Hodkinson about the standard of play in League Two these days. Uh, I don't, with, with Middlesbrough's lofty, lofty times in, in the Championship, you may, you may not watch too much League Two, Dan, but um, these seem to largely comprise of sort of really attritional play and, and time wasting at the moment is, is Mark's view of it and, and if you think there's been a lot of stoppage time at the World Cup I, I reckon games would probably be closing in on 200 minutes if they applied the same rules yeah. to to some League Two games uh, with, with a lot of the uh, a lot of the play acting and and slow goal kicks and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a bit, bit of a moan but um, about that. I'd be interested to see what other League Two fans think if, if they've got the the same views of, of how the league has been going yeah. in the past few years. And then we've also got a tribute to Ronnie Radford, uh, who, who died recently by, uh, by David Stubbs. And Radford obviously um, was defined, his career was defined by yeah. that goal, um, as we all know. And, and as David points out in the article, that bobbled muddy surface from which Radford let fly left just that bit to chance that something <laughs> like this could happen. And he, he also suggests that it's, Year year zero for for giant killings, um, in terms of how you, how you look back at them, because the TV coverage of Radford's goal allowed it to become ubiquitous in a way that, say, Colchester's win over Leeds the previous mm. season hasn't become quite so well known, and partly sort of a, a mix of of the visuals and, and the Motson commentary, and and it constantly being replayed on on things like Football Focus, and every time Hereford draw anyone above them in the league, pretty much. So yeah, again, an, another sort of interesting topic to look at really is 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 that year zero for for how you modern people sort of in the modern world you view uh, mm-hmm. giant killings. And uh, speaking of giant, there's uh, much more, of course, in the in the in the magazine, including an extract an extract from your new book, Dan, in which you go for a day out to watch Dolly Blues yes. Giant Axe. So it was quite a segue. It was tremendous, there, but, Tom. You know, I, I, take it. This, <laughs> yes. this, this is my last one. I'm allowed. I'm allowed to say. Showboat. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. It was hard um, to choose an extract from the Silence of the Stands, not because it's absolutely brilliant, but just because I wanted something something representative. <laughs> well, it yeah, was hard to find anything worthy to people to read. Wanted something quite representative of the book, and and the so the, the thousand words also in there are, are fairly typical of of a game during COVID and the, the relief of being back in the ground, which was the what, giant axe. I don't think there's a there is there. A, I did go through. I did I did rack my brains about that and, and do lots of research on that yes. one. Which you'd appreciate <laughs> as a as a um, sub editor, Tom. And so it's a, hopefully a representative piece about arriving and the joy of being back in back in the ground and, and a, a segue uh that, that word again about fixture boards outside grounds because i just love them in there in the unit yes they are excellent they are excellent and the and that combination of fixture boards um giant axe and the the club's nickname dolly blues gives uh, the illustrator plenty of material to work with i'd say in, in this issue as you'll see i'm, I'm worried you, that's going to attack yeah, me it's, a, night, it's an excellent illustration you'll see when when you buy it <laughs> if ever there's been a an incentive to buy a magazine Um, and Um, bits missed out from Lancaster one that I I couldn't fit in was that during halftime they'd run out of ale and a fellow went up and said uh, you know have you got what what ales have you got and all of this and she said I'm afraid we've only got Guinness and he said Guinness no thanks cock it tastes of horse which I thought was tremendous. <laughs> it had everything. It had the Lancastrian use what, of the word what cock a review. And, yeah. and So Guinness not rushing to sponsor us any time soon. Yeah. In the podcast, Disappointed but... that didn't get into, into <laughs> no. the extract. Then. No. <laughs> no. But yeah, so I think everyone everyone should obviously buy the magazine to read the extract, but mainly to see the illustration um, and then buy the book from the WSC shop Yes, uh, for a perfect Christmas gift. Absolutely right. Hats and scarves and pin badges. Program. Program. Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Montreal Manic FC, Tony Want... Curious tea ladies, and it's landed on countries who played in only one World Cup. Ooh. 
Andy, what in the name of all that's holy does that bring to mind? Tony Want, as you mentioned, I wonder if he ever played against Paul Went of Charlton. Possibly did in a competition. <laughs> want, Went, Want, kind of thing. Anyway, um, that was just a, a thought. Um, well, East Germany, 1974, of course, famously defeated West Germany in the group stage. You know, it has been suggested that West Germany may have decided to lose that match. It was the last match in a group because they ended up in a, a slightly easier second round group. They avoided Holland and Brazil. But I'd, certainly, wouldn't that wouldn't have been the attitude of the West German coach, Helmut Schoen, who was from Dresden in the East and, and wanted to win that game. And East Germany didn't qualify for World Cup or European Championships after. They did well in the Olympics, but a lot of the Soviet bloc countries could use full-strength teams because they were officially amateur. They won the Olympics once. But they were sort of fairly competitive national side, even though their league from the end of the 70s was blatantly fixed. I mean, Dinamo Berlin, who were the favourite team of the, the Stasi, the secret police, were allowed to win 10 league titles in a row, specifically to beat European record that had been jointly held at the time by Celtic and, of course, later Rangers equal. But uh, you'd think that kind of thing, with a lot of league matches obviously being fixed, might have affected morale in the national squad a bit, where there were obviously always several players from other clubs. So some of them would be thinking, well, in training, you know, we threw a game for you last week, now you want us to pass to you. Well, you know, think on, Reinhardt. But I don't know if that actually <laughs> happened. Um <laughs> Uh, back to World Cup, uh, Jamaica 1998 benefited from a move that could perhaps have started a bit early, really, of, of, and has happened since, of Caribbean and African national teams calling up British-born players who were eligible to play for them, because Ireland had done it earlier with English-born players, one of whom, Tony Cascarino, wasn't actually Irish at all, it turned out, so about 20 years later. And Jamaica in the 98 World Cup, they had seven players with English league teams at the time, plus several others who went on to play in England later, including... Uh, Ricardo Gardner with Bolton being being the best known. But one of the things I remembered about that team was, that, and they got a bit of coverage on TV at the time, they're being followed around France by some German fans who are kind of stoners, really. I had like a camper van with a big illustration of a marijuana leaf on the side. And they, they were interviewed about how they love the reggae boys and stuff. And I'm not sure how some of the Jamaican players would react to that. Really. I mean, Robbie Earls from Stoke, you know, he'd probably think, well, these, <laughs> these German lads are a bit intense, aren't they? You know, but um, Jamaica did at least win a game against Japan, although that was after they'd already been knocked out after the losing the first two matches. Also, Trinidad in 2006, they had 15 players in their squad, the British clubs, nine in England, six in Scotland, and, and including, talking of the Potteries, Chris Birchall of Port Vale, who'd qualified through his mum having been born in Trinidad, which led to his nickname in the squad, because often when he was asked in interviews how he'd qualified, he'd say, me mum. So the players, or all the other players, started to call him me mum, me mum Birchall. <laughs> um, and at 2002 World Cup, um, uh, China qualified for the only time so far, mainly because Asia got some extra places in, because Japan and Korea qualified as hosts. And in the event, they didn't, they lost all three games, didn't score, didn't really make any impact on the tournament at all. But they did, when it came to public art, is that it's still the biggest set of public sculptures to do with football. There's 44 bronze statues of the squad, the coach and various team officials were put up in a training complex that China were using, which is the largest uh, football sculpture ever in terms of number of figures. And the, the, uh, the statues are shown doing various things like running and doing various stretching exercises and so on. There's also a giant steel victory V that was placed on a on a, a steel football with results from the qualifiers on a, on a plinth underneath. And um, but I don't know afterwards whether Chinese pigeons or the equivalent kind of shat on them, or whatever. But obviously China didn't really like to particularly. I don't think sort of discuss the, the exploits of the football team for a while after after the 2002 World Cup. And the the big V was moved into into a, a shed into a warehouse somewhere. But then in 2012, most of the statues and the big V were cleaned up and moved to a venue where. Um, a China, Chinese national games, a national sports, annual sports event were being held. But there's only 32 of the 44 were re-erected because the team officials who'd been part of the group um, weren't re-erected because there'd been some match-fixing subsequently, which some of them were implicated. So they'd all been melted down to make whatever you make out of bronze, I don't know, coins or car parts or something. But with the other players, I don't know, maybe... In hundreds of years' time, archaeologists will find these figures of kind of men in shorts doing calisthenics and stretching exercise and think, who were these people? Was this some sort of religious caste or something? And I suppose in a way they were. <laughs> and Harry? Um, well, it's interesting. It depends what you count as the World Cup, because I noticed that Uruguay have four stars on their shirt, although they only won the World Cup twice, and that's because they count the 1924 and 1928 Olympics um, football tournaments, which were organised by FIFA. And I think FIFA may recognise them as World Cups now. If you did do that, 
if you took that line, then 1924, uh, Lithuania, Estonia and Latvia all took part for the, the only time in a World Cup. Uh, not too successful, I should say. Lithuania beaten 9-0 by the Swiss, Latvia 7-0 by France. Well, Estonia, a respectable 1-0 defeat to the USA. Um, but if we take actual, what we actually think of as World Cups, I would think of the Dutch East Indies, uh, who took part in the 1938 World Cup. They were due to play Japan. Um, but Japan withdrew. It was 1938. I think they had they had other things on their mind, invading China or something like that, probably. Um, and so the Dutch East Indies travelled to France. Um, the Dutch East Indies, what's now um, Indonesia, of course, the capital in Batavia, now Jakarta. Um, it's, I should say that it's um, that the Dutch East Indies is is where the Komodo dragon lives. It'd be quite a fearsome a fearsome mascot if you had brought one of those with you. Um, and they 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 so they came through to France and. They lost. They only played one game. They lost six nil to Hungary um, at Reims, and so they actually that was the only game they played. And they travelled the distance from the Dutch from from Batavia to Paris is eleven thousand five hundred and seventy eight kilometres. So they travelled. They travelled twenty three thousand miles round trip to lose six nil. Must have been a bit, a bit of depressing on the bus on the way back, I imagine. <laughs> anyway, but the um, but the the team included uh, Tae Hong Jin, who was the star of the team, and he was sent to have been he was scouted and offered terms by Barcelona, but he preferred to return home and run the family farm, which is good. And the captain of the team, Ahmad Nawir, uh, joins our our list of players who played wearing spectacles. Oh. Um, and he said after the after the defeat, um, he said <laughs> he's reported to have said. It was about sport, which brings joy to life and does not degenerate into the grim face of the purely success-hunting diehard. Mm. Well, that's the spirit. <laughs> um, also made me think, I also think of India as well, who have actually never taken part in a World Cup, but did qualify for the 1950 World Cup um, but in Brazil, but then they withdrew. The Indian FA claimed it was because of travel costs, um, but FIFA had actually offered to meet their travel costs, so that doesn't make any sense. There's also uh, a constantly repeated rumour that it was because FIFA had banned the Indian players from paying barefoot, but the Indian players deny that that was the case. Um, the only possible explanation is also that the Indian FA said they wanted the, t- they wanted the, the team to concentrate on the Olympics, um, in which case it didn't work out too well, because in the next Olympic Games, India were knocked out in the first round by Yugoslavia, who beat them 10-1. Never been there since. Um, also, would think of Kuwait as well in 1982 in the tournament in Spain. They were Asian. They were Asian cup holders, a bit like Qatar are now. Um, they'd beaten South Korea on the way there. They were managed by Carlos Alberto Pereira, um, probably one of the uh, probably one of the grumpiest looking Brazilians of all time. Um, and they, they they really the thing that everyone remembers, of course, is the infamous game against France, um, in which France's fourth goal was eventually disallowed after the Kuwaiti FA president, Prince Farhid, invaded the pitch and remonstrated with the referee. Uh, the goal had been scored by Alan Jures. And the referee, he kind of came and the referee awarded the goal. And then after the Kuwaitis invaded the pitch, he changed his mind. He was a Soviet referee, Miroslav Stupa, actually came from the Ukraine. And he was banned from all international football after that. Um, I should say that the Kuwaitis arrived with a camel mascot named Haidu, and the slogan, our camel is a winner, uh, which was actually a response to when they played New Zealand um, in, the, in, the, in the qualifiers, New Zealand had, had, the New Zealand fans had held up a banner saying, go back to your camels. And so that was their, that was their response. Right, challenge, so challenge! Right, come on out. Challenge it, so challenging! On the Debbie Scott, so on the, so on the land! Get on the well, land! And again, so get it back, like, get it back, like, get it back! Come on, get it back! Give someone a subscription to when Saturday comes this Christmas and they'll be reminded of your generosity throughout 2023. Plus, we'll send them a message from you telling them all about the generous gift. Order now at wsc.co.uk forward slash Christmas.
It's time for the part of the podcast where one of us chooses a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Harry, what's your choice this time? Well, well I, I mentioned um, our camel is a winner. Um, the, the slogan of the Kuwaiti team in 1982, and they actually recorded a record with that very title um, for that thing. Um, it's one of the, I think one of the few football songs by a, by a, by a team from the Gulf that's on the site. And it's uh, rather fantastic. And it says, I like the fact that it's got a, the, the, the cover of it says, Our Camel, Lovely Camel. And then it says, With compliments of Bookham Scene Travels. And so this is uh, Our Camel is a Winner, which it wasn't as it turned out. We've got some great Christmas gift ideas on the When Saturday Comes shop, including our 2023 calendar showing off some of the best images taken by WSC's team of photographers down the years and brand new books including Against All Odds, The Greatest World Cup Upsets, featuring a number of WSC contributors and The Silence of the Stands by uh, me. Order now from wsc.co.uk slash shop. And now it's time for our giddy feature, the final third, in which we ask someone to help us build a football museum by donating a match, a player and an object. This time I'm joined by Jack Spring, film director whose excellent new feature film, Three Day Millionaire, is out. Now, Jack, how are you? Hello, mate. I'm really, really well. We are, uh, yeah, we're halfway through our UK tour, so this is a rare morning off for me, which is very exciting. Um, The throat is a bit coarse. But doing great, and uh, I mean, what a pleasure to be on here. My uh, my dad has bought WSC since I could remember, um, so I've been an avid reader of the magazine, and recently an avid listener of the podcast. So, um, yeah, mate, this is fantastic. Oh, this tremendous! Is, uh, it's quite surreal. We've got a nice homespun bit of uh, background texture noise today because someone's decided to start putting scaffolding up this morning on the house opposite me. So it's it's earthy, it's gritty, it's scaffolding. That's what we're after, I think. I like it. <laughs> Jack, I watched the film over the weekend, enjoyed it absolutely tremendously. Beautifully shot. Is it fair to say that Grimsby, is the town itself, is a bit of a star of this film? Mate, absolutely. I mean, Grimsby's, Grimsby's a main character in it. And, you know, mm. when you break it all back and, you know, it's got layers of comedy and these brilliant characters and the plot heist and, you know, great music by the War Boys. But when you strip it all back, you know, it's a film about identity uh, and Grimsby's identity and kind of mm. Grimsby representing a, a, an awful lot of ex-industrial northern towns who at, at some point had their industry pulled and kind of struggled to find their new identity or their kind of 2.0, if you like. And um, Grimsby's done that in the last few years. You know, it's now like one of the leaders in the renewable energy space in the UK. And it's got like the world's biggest offshore wind farm. And um, yeah, you know, it's a film about that, that kind of, you know, having the identity pulled and and trying to discover the real one. And and yeah, you know, so it's got quite a deep, deep kind of political message. But yeah, Grimsby Mm. is, uh, you know, definitely, definitely got a kind of arc and a story throughout the film. 
Mm. Tell us a bit about what the film is. I mean, it begins with a beautiful bit of uh, footage of, of Trollerman and, and Trollers out at sea, of course, as it's Grimsby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the very term Frido Millionaire, you know, if, you, if you're from Grimsby or Hull or, or any of them kind of fishing towns around there, then, then you'd know the, the, the term. But uh, Three Day Millionaires are basically referring to the Trollerman that used to sail out the town. And, and what they did, they'd go to sea for like three or four weeks at a time and come back to land for three days before going back to sea again. And it was fisherman folklore, assumingly started by a pub landlord, that if you went back to sea with coin in your pocket, your ship would sink. Um, so what that meant for the trawlermen is they'd basically come back, spunk a month of wages uh, in three days, and um, they'd get these suits made every time they come back and go down Freeman Street, which is like the uh, Las Vegas Boulevard of northeast Lincolnshire, or kind of <laughs> certainly was back in its heyday. And um, yeah, kind of that's how the film starts. You know, they come back to land um, from being at sea for so long, spend all their money and then kind of get roped in um, to doing a heist once they're told that the industry's died overnight, kind of as it did. And um, yeah, this is the only way that they can kind of save their way of lives, really. Mm. A brilliant cast as well. Recognisable faces if you're a Corrie fan like me, but also if you're a fan of The Damned United with Colmini, a.k.a. Don Revy, for the purposes of this podcast appearing as well. Absolutely. Brilliant as ever. Absolutely. I mean, it was quite surreal. So Colm, um, at the time, you know, by far the kind of, biggest name that I'd worked with and he was great and you know the the day that he uh came to Grimsby he'd literally flown from from LA uh and he was insistent that he had a tour of the town and the only car that um production had available was a Peugeot 107 that one of, one of the runners had and you know there was rubbish all over it and you know he was having to sit on like empty cans of Red Bull and cigarette papers and all this and uh so yeah he, he absolutely bought into it absolutely loved it um he owes me a hundred quid because Grimsby Town got promoted last season, so um, he'll be in the next movie. He's in my pocket now, too. Um, and um, yeah, you know the, the game. It's funny you said Don Revy because Damned United was kind of one of the first things as a kid that I watched him in, and um, so he's always been Don Revy to me before anything else. <laughs> and um, the first day he was on set, he he had a ta- he had a scene in a fish factory in Grimsby where he has to stand on a table. And I, I quite, you know, I admitted to him that I was like, I was sitting at my monitor just watching everything get set up and I was like, this is weird, mate. I've got Don Revy in a fish factory in Grimsby in my movie. This is cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, man, but he was, he's an absolute gem. He's an unbelievable actor. They all are. And um, yeah, I think casting's one of my strongest kind of points. And yeah, I think we really nailed it in, in this movie. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And it it fizzes along nicely. Brilliant bit of entertainment. What, what's the easiest place? I know it's on tour at the moment. You can get the dates on the website. But what will be the easiest way for people to see it after that? Yeah, so it's, it was released on Friday, so a few days ago on um, on digital as well. So it's in like twenty different cities, cinema wise, um, and then it's on all the digital platforms. So it's on Amazon, it's on Google, it's on Roku, and it's on Xbox. It's on everywhere you could possibly want to buy a movie. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's out now. So anyone listening can go and grab it. And, um, yeah, you know, we're very happy. I think anyone that likes Snatch, Train Spotting, This Is England, Full Monty, it's kind of a sort of a conglomerate of um, mm. different bits from all of them films kind of rolled into its kind of very own original thing. Mm, very much so. So how about you? You mentioned you went Saturday Comes Connection. What's your own supporting life? Who's your team? Who do you watch? The Mighty Mariners, Grimsby yes. Town, um, which might confuse the listeners because obviously I, I don't sound like I'm from Grimsby, uh, and I'm not. Uh, my dad is, though, and my dad's right. side of the family. And, um, yeah, I got roped in from a very young age. Um, we were actually this summer, we were trying to work out my, my first Grimsby Town game, and I think it was 2001, so I was born in 96. So I was four or five years old, and um, I'm convinced it was Watford away, and I think we lost about 4-0 because I remember... So now, uh, this, this isn't information transferred to your listeners yet because uh, this is a podcast. I'm, I'm six foot nine, um, so I'm massive. Um, but back then, I was a wee pup. And uh, I remember being, you know, in an in, in away end uh, is at Vicarage Road um, and not being able to see in front of me because people were all standing up and hearing a goal. And I was like, Dad, if Grimsby scored, he was like, nah. Dad, if Grimsby scored when the next ball goes up. Dad of Grimsby scored, and he, I think after four goals, he was like, "Yeah, son, get used to this." <laughs> and um, yeah, for some reason, I was hooked, and I'm, I'm convinced it's because I learned so many new swear words that day uh, that I just loved it. And um, yeah, man, I mean, it, it makes up far more of my identity than it probably should. Um, you know, people ask who I am: number one film director, number two Grimsby Town fan. And um, 
yeah, just love it. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. I remember being a kid, like, you know, you'd get crap in the playground. Like, Who's your real team? Why are you wearing a Newcastle shirt? And then as you've got older, it's actually, it's kind of become a bit hipster to support yeah. a lower league team. Um, yeah. It's become a bit cool when people are jumping on the bandwagon. Um, yeah. I mean, I've converted four or five of my mates in the last couple of years. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. I, I absolutely love it. And, you know, even like, it's been very helpful career-wise, strangely. Um, you know, so we, my business partner is Andrew Pettit, who uh, is one of the co-owners of Grimsby Town Football Club. Um, we met through, obviously, a mutual love of, of the football club, as I have a lot of my kind of investors and my team. And, you know, three day million, the whole film was financed in Grimsby, um, predominantly mm-hmm. by Grimsby Town fans. Uh, you know, so Grimsby Town has not only uh, been a great source of entertainment with all of their relegations and promotions, um, but has been, um, yeah, actually strangely helpful to my career. Do you think there's an almost a version of absence makes the heart grow fonder when you support a team, an unlikely team from afar? And you, your love is mm. has to be more intense to make you want to go that far from South London. Uh, mate, yeah, I mean, the miles that I cover to watch Grimsby Town is, um, yeah, unhealthy. Um, and yeah, I remember growing up as a kid, you know, like when early kind of 2000s, mid-2000s, um, you know, I think they first started streaming the radio feed over the internet, which was mightily exciting because, yeah, at least I could uh, listen to us lose yeah. 4-0 at Morecambe. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of all I had. And, you know, there'd be four or five games a year where, you know, they were close enough to South London that that, that could take me. And, um, yeah. you know, boxing days were always special because we'd always be up in Grimsby anyway. And, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think it has probably intensified my love for it. I think you're right. I mean, now mm. I'm... You know, a little bit older, I I take myself to games. Um, but yeah, I, I just love it. It's it's a release, and I think it's a rare sense of kind of tribalism that you get. And um, you know, obviously, I'm I am uniquely heighted. I have quite a unique job, and um, just to feel kind of part of a uh, tribe of people that mm. do all sorts of things and all look different, and it's quite nice. It's quite a cathartic mm. kind of uh, thing to all be abusing a non-league linesman at Wilston. Uh, it feels quite good. It's impossible to leave the six foot nine fact alone. Do you, do you make, if you're on a terrace, do you make sure you go right at the back? Mate, honestly, uh, we went to Kings Lynn away last year. So we got promoted last season out, out of the National League, thank yeah. God. Um, and one of the away days we had to suffer was uh, Kings Lynn away. And uh, I, I'm sure you haven't ever been to Kings Lynn away because... Why the fuck would you? But um, Kingsland away have the most ridiculous um, kind of terrace system where it's just open top. There's no kind of roof. But the the stand, the, or the kind of like paving slabs are higher at the front than they are the back. Um, so they don't kind of incline like a traditional terrace would, uh, which means an awful lot of people can't see bloody anything. Um, and I was the source of commentary for about 200 Grimsby Town fans that day because... Uh, uh, I could just about see some of the pitch, um, and it was an absolute. You know, we won one nil, but you know, people were travelled a long way and paid like they, they upped the price for us as well. The buggers, um, and yeah, luckily we got promoted. They got relegated, so hopefully we'll never have to endure that again. One of the highlights of the Wrexham documentary series, your promotion. Maybe not for Wrexham fans, but it was quite enjoyable. Mm. Um, Okay, well, Jack, as well as talking about the great new three-day millionaire, we've got you on as our latest guest curator for the When Saturday Comes Football Museum. So I'd like you to donate to us, first of all, for the museum, a match of your choosing. Yes, I think, um, it's funny you said Wrexham. (laughs) Uh, Last season uh, in the National League, Playoff semi-final, uh, which was the 28th of May, because that is my anniversary with my girlfriend. Um, so I had some decisions to make. Um, we played Wrexham in the uh, yeah in the semi-final uh, of the playoffs, and um, it was at Wrexham. We had booked a uh, hotel for the weekend in Edinburgh. How very short-sighted of me! Uh, so I, we, I had to watch it on a laptop. Um, I couldn't. I did Google how far the drive from Edinburgh to Wrexham was to see if I could sneak off for a couple of hours. But, uh, yes, it was a little too far. Uh, we won 5-4. Um, and it was probably the most entertaining or stressful for me um, game of football uh, of all time. Uh, anyone who loves football should watch that game. Um, it was back and forth. 
you know, and we got a 119th minute winner, which is mental in isolation. But when you put it into context, you know, four days earlier or whatever it was, five days, we played in Notts County uh, where we were 1-0 down in the 95th minute. We get a 96th minute equaliser to take it to extra time and we get a 119th minute winner. So we've done this 119th minute winner luck, two games on the spin uh, in the playoffs uh, and it was mental. And um, yeah, you know, for... For all the media hype that was hyped about Wrexham, and I think they had a budget two or three times ours, it was at the race course ground, um, to their ground. And, yeah, you know, all the kind of Hollywood stuff that, that has kind of gone with them. And, um, yeah, it was uh, it was both the best and the worst 120 minutes of my life because I thought I was going to die. Um, <laughs> but, you know, looking back, you know, and then obviously we a week later or two weeks later, we went on and got promoted. So... Yeah, it that for me was uh, the most mental game of football, yeah. uh, even for a neutral, you know, someone that isn't a town or Wrexham fan to, yeah. to watch. It was insane. It's always a strange one having these huge moments in your supporting life, in, well, just your life, really. And you, you, you're somewhere else, though. So you're running onto Princess right. Street, absolutely elated, <laughs> and the rest of the world has got no idea what you're going Honestly, through. Honestly, we, 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 we stationed ourselves in a very... Um, nice family pub and i can i have a big thing against that bloke in a pub that's watching racehorsing or pool or snooker or something that no one else gives a toss about and is making a bloody racket um but that was me that day and i'm very proud of it <laughs> quite right quite right well that's a superb addition we'll have to have to represent that day we'll have to have some sort of melted amazing clock that goes to 119 minutes i think is the Mate, exhibit it's, uh, <laughs> it is incredible <laughs> let's have from you then a player player for me um grimsby town legend james McEwen. um so he was our keeper for 10 11 years he only left at the end of last season um and he played over 500 games for us, probably more, probably like seven, like a stupid amount of games. Um, he joined the club when, uh, so in about 2011, so I was 14, 15, and um, as, you know, in recent years, he's become a really good mate of mine. And um, the amount of just points that man has saved or won us over that decade uh, is an absolute joke. I mean, the guy, some of the saves, like, oh, it's... He was all. He was the first on the team sheet every week. He was like Mr. Grimsby Town. Always will be. You know my my apartment. I I think I've got three signed James McEwen memorabilia frame things. <laughs> I've got a shirt. I've got his gloves. I've got a picture with him signed as well. Um, and yeah, just a lovely guy, an absolute legend. You know, will always be my kind of Grimsby Town number one. And um, yeah, just an absolute icon between the sticks for the Mariners. You've met through your career, I imagine, a number of famous people, including Col Colmini. Um, mm. But do you still get more nervous meeting a goalkeeping icon than any of those type yeah. of people? So we we have a project that I'm under embargo. I can't talk about. Um, but I um, I I got to work with some of my favourite footballers. Let's put it that way. Um, and I um, was far more nervous far more nervous the night before uh, meeting and working with them than I have ever been for any kind of Hollywood actor. Um, I think because they're, they're kind of your, your very personal heroes, Yeah. you know, like, and, and, you know, you kind of, even as an adult, you know, the, the kind of the veil that a kid has between a, you know, a kid, kid and a footballer, you know, this kind of mystery and, you know, kind of almost bromance um, still exists as an adult. And, uh, you know, you in your head, you, you know they're like these these amazing beings. And you know, I was actually lucky enough as part of the uh, kind of press tour for for Three Day Millionaire to actually train with the Grimsby Town goalkeepers a couple of weeks ago. Um, I went on trial, you know, in inverted commas. Um, did a did some like training sessions, and um, it was all filmed and put on put on YouTube and whatnot. And the fans had the chance to vote as to whether I got no deal, uh, a three year deal, or a three day deal. Uh, and by 2%, I won a three-day deal. Um, so I'm still waiting for the contract. Um, but that was pretty... I think, you know, out of out of all the cool stuff that's happened in the last few weeks with the release of the film, that's definitely up there. Yeah, absolutely. Superb stuff. OK, well, let's have from you for the When Saturday Comes Football Museum, an object. An object. Um, 
it's going to go back to James McEwen again. I don't have that many football objects, but um, some of the signed things he's sent me over the years um, are definitely up there. I mean, I've, I proudly have you know, lots of signed football shirts in the corridor of the apartment. Um, Padre Gamond from the 2015-2016 promotion season at Grimsby Town. Um, James McEwen signed shirt. Um, so it's probably one of them two things. You know, I, I, I absolutely love them and they just... There's something about them that that's just really special, and and yeah, again, something really special happened with with Three Day Millionaire the the day after the Grimsby premiere. Um, the the two chairman and the CEO called me into the boardroom. Um, uh, that was very formal. Um, for telling off, no, for um, and they presented to me a signed Grimsby Town shirt, and on the back of it, it said uh, Spring, and then the number three, and then Day uh, underneath. And I was quite emotional about receiving yeah. that because. I do love a signed shirt, and that that one was like really nice, and uh, yeah, I uh, really touched me. Um, it was a beautiful gesture by beautiful people, and um, yeah, so probably uh, almost certainly some of my um, you know signed Grimsby Town uh, memorabilia that occupies my apartment, much to the girlfriend's annoyance. Yeah, well, she'll be happy because it's coming on long-term loan for the When Saturday Comes Football Museum with one of those lovely little cards saying long-term loan from Jack Spring. So there, there we are. go, baby. An, there we an go. act of benevolence, you Rockefeller. You. <laughs> um, okay, well, after all this thinking in the When Saturday Comes Football Museum, people are going to be hungry and thirsty. Can you nominate a snack for our museum cafe? So this is a tough one. Um, in January, I turned vegan. Um, I got particularly concerned being six foot nine. The average life expectancy for a six foot nine bloke is about seventy, and I, so I got freaked out about this. I was like, "Oh yeah. no, <laughs> I want longer." Uh, so I started like running lots and went vegan and stopped, you know, drinking and you know anything bad for me kind of cut out. And um, and yeah, um, so vegan food at football games is pretty hard to come by. Um, <laughs> The one place that does exceptional vegan food, uh, Forest Green Rovers. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I believe all of their food on sale is vegan, if not yeah. certainly vegetarian. Um, and they get an awful lot of rubbish um, for this, but the food is rather remarkable. Um, I remember having chips and curry sauce. Curry sauce is one of these surprisingly vegan things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I always thought there was all sorts in there, um, but no, it turns out it's vegan. And um, so yeah, probably for me, Forest Green Rovers, um, very nice chips and curry sauce with a shed load of salt and vinegar and a bottle of pop. You have been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Do join me, Andy and Harry again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. <laughs>